Well, last week we had a week off, so this week we're going to continue our look at the attributes of God. Anybody remember what we talked about two weeks ago? Attributes of God, that, that's correct. Anybody remember which attribute we were talking about two weeks ago? Immensity, yes, omnipresence. So we're talking about the infinity of God, and God is infinite in space. And the week before that, we talked about he's infinite in time. He transcends all limitations of time and space. This week, we're going to talk about unity and simplicity. Unity and simplicity. And this is not two separate attributes. These are the same attribute, just looking at it from a different angle. Uh, When you look at it in a systematic theology, it'll say unity, or they'll just say simplicity. But two sides of the same coin. So there are two types of unity. Two types of unity. The first one is called numerical oneness. And I know that sounds like a really weird way to say it, but that's Herman Bavinck's way of saying it. Numerical oneness. And the second one is called qualitative oneness. So what do we mean by these two terms? The first one refers to there being only one God. And that one God is unique. He is different than all other gods. If you read A.W. Pink's little book that's in the bookstore, it's the very first chapter, the singularity of God. He is the only, he is the unique one. Qualitative oneness says that that one God, that one unique God, is a simple unity of essence. So the first one we're just going to call unity, and the second one we're going to call simplicity. Unity and simplicity. So let's look at the very first one, numerical oneness. What are we talking about when we say that there is only one God? Well, we're talking about the issue of monotheism versus polytheism. Now, the three predominant religions in the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, this is a settled question. They all three affirm monotheism. And so you might be thinking, well, this is a pointless discussion to have because everyone here agrees there's only one God. Why talk about it? Because there are still groups that are polytheist. There are still people who believe in polytheism. And some of those groups actually call themselves Christian. And they're polytheist. Now, there are other religions that are not so-called Christian, like Hinduism. They're polytheists. Who can name a group that says they're Christian, but they're polytheist? Mormons. Uh, The purpose of this class is not to deal with apologetics and go in and look real deep at other religions, but I do want to take a moment and show you four quotes from Mormonism to prove to you that the claim that they are polytheists is not just someone making something up. This is what they actually believe. This is what they teach. And when a Mormon shows up at your door, you're talking to someone who is, in fact, a polytheist. Joseph Smith, in the King Follett Funeral Discourse, said this, God himself was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. Smith believed that God was a human being just like you. That he walked on an earth, that he lived a normal life just like any other human being. And that as a result of him being a really good human being, he received an exalted position as a god. And now he reigns as a god, but he is still 
a man who has been deified. Joseph Smith continued, It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another, and that he was once a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on the earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. He was once a man, and you can go and converse with this man just like you can converse any other man. You can speak with him. And notice here at the end, dwelt on an earth. He didn't dwell on this earth. He dwelt on a different earth where there was a different God ruling over it. And when you tell a Mormon, well, you're a polytheist, they'll say, well, no, actually we're not because we only worship one God. But they do believe that there are many gods. And what he says is the goal of your life is to be just like your father in heaven, to be a human being and to be exalted to the place of God. Joseph Smith again. To inherit the same power, the same glory, and the same exaltation until you arrive at the station of a god and ascend the throne of eternal power the same as those who have gone before. The goal of the Mormon life is to become God. To work and to achieve the status of deity and to be exalted like God is in heaven. To have your own little universe and your own little world that you rule over as God. When I hear that, I always think of the Garden of Eden. You will be like God. It wasn't God who was promising that. But if you look at this and it says, well, all of those who have gone before you have done the same thing. Everyone who has been a good Mormon, according to Joseph Smith, has become a god. So how many gods are there according to Mormonism? Last little quote from a Mormon apostle named Orson Pratt. I don't know how they define apostle, but here's what he said. If we should take a million worlds like this and number their particles, we should find that there are more gods than there are particles of matter in, the, in those worlds. So take the earth and count every particle of matter in the earth. Now multiply that number by a million different worlds. That's how many gods Mormonism believes in. That's a lot of gods. And they say they are monotheists only in the sense that they only worship one of those gods. Polytheism is alive and well today. This is not a pointless discussion. This is not a pointless thing to talk about and to discuss as we discuss the attributes of God, speaking of the numerical oneness of God, that he is the only God. Scripture makes it very clear. There is only one God. And when you understand the essence, the essence of God, when you understand his nature, you can't come to any other conclusion than there is only one God. The essence of the God that we believe in, his nature prevents any other God from being in existence. He can't be the supreme being if there are other gods. He can't be the highest thing imaginable if there are other gods. Scriptures emphatically deny the existence of any other God. It starts where? It starts in Genesis 1 and 2. God created. He is the creator. 
everything that exists exists because of him. And this is proven later when it says that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. Don't think of heaven and earth as two locations. Think of heaven and earth as the range. He possesses everything in the heavens and on earth. He possesses them all because he created them all. Colossians 1 says nothing was created outside of Jesus Christ. Everything that exists, exists because of him. Which means there cannot be other gods who formed by being created and then being deified. But this also is proven in other verses. Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh is the only God that was revealed to Israel. Yahweh is the God that pulled them out of the land of Egypt, that delivered them. And he commands them and says, you are not to have any other gods other than me. All other gods are false gods. And some will say, well, that's okay, because he says you are not to have any other gods before me, which implicitly assumes that there are other gods. And he's telling them you're not allowed to worship those other gods. Yeah, you can, you can say that until you get to Deuteronomy 4. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, Yahweh, he is God. And there is no other besides him. There's one God and there is no other. Isaiah, before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. When the Mormon shows up at your door, bring him to Isaiah 43 and read that verse to him. Before Yahweh, there were no other gods. Yahweh is not a created being. He did not ascend to the position of deity. He has always been God. And after him, no other god will be formed. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. I'm going to sidestep the fact that there's Trinitarian language there for a minute. There is no God besides Yahweh. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. Have I beat this dead horse in the ground yet? We can keep going. There are plenty of other verses that show there is only one God. This is the numerical oneness of God. He's the singular God. And then again, you have people who make the argument, yes, but the Bible does speak of other gods. The Bible does say that Israel went after other gods, and therefore there are other gods, we're just not allowed to worship them. Okay, let's look at what the Bible says about those other gods. Let's consider for a moment what Yahweh has to say about these other gods, and let's see if you think these are actually legitimately gods. Deuteronomy 32. They have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. All the things that they were going after, all the other so-called gods that they were worshiping, you don't even get out of the book of Deuteronomy before Moses says, those aren't even gods. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. This is an interesting term. Because you would think that the term he uses here for idols actually refers to like a little statue of some kind. 
but it doesn't. It's the Hebrew word hevel. Sound familiar? Where have you heard that one before? Ecclesiastes. That's the term he uses here for idols. Hevel. They're all a fleeting breath. Vanishing. They're a vapor. It's the context that tells us he's talking about idols. All of those other gods are nothing more than a breath. Passing, vanishing, empty. Psalm 96.5 For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord, that would be Yahweh, made the heavens. I'm going to start on the second half of this one. Notice where he gets his argument. The psalmist points right back to what? Creation. He says, you know Yahweh is the only God because he is the one who created. And once again, he uses a term here for idols that is not actually the term for an idol. It's another term. I'm going to step away. We'll be back to Psalm 96. It's another term that's found in Job 13.4. But you smear with lies. You are all worthless physicians. The term he uses in Psalm 96.5 is the same term here translated as worthless. So when you go back to Psalm 96.5, you can translate it this way. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless, but the Lord made the heavens. Yeah, Old Testament does talk about other gods. It says they are a fleeting breath and they are worthless. Jeremiah flat out says that they are worthless a work of mockery. And it's not just that you're mocking God when you bow down and worship a little statue. You're actually making a fool out of yourself. And I'm not making that up. Jeremiah, all mankind is stupid. That's not my translation. <laughs> Devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful. And there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. If you can look at the created universe, if you can look at all that Yahweh has created, and still turn around and bow down to a little statue, Jeremiah is like, you're stupid. You're a fool. Just straight up ridicule. So does the Old Testament speak of other gods? Yeah. Does that mean we should believe there are other gods? He says these are worthless breaths. And you're a fool if you actually believe they're worth something. These are all fake. There is one true God. A single God of the universe. And he is unique. As we've been studying through the attributes what should be obvious to everyone is that there is no other God who claims the attributes of the God of Scripture. You go and look at any other God of any other religion, none of them come close. So that's numerical oneness. Any questions or comments on numerical oneness before we move forward? Qualitative oneness. That one God is a simple unity of essence. And I want to focus in on the term simple. This is also known as simplicity. 
um, in the afternoons, I teach a counseling class, and I have them laughing at me a lot because I don't script what I'm going to say there. And so I just come up with analogies off the top of my head, and most of them deal with food. So I think they think I'm a glutton or something. I don't know. And so I promise I'm going to stop using food analogies. Well, I'm going to break my promise this morning because we're going to talk about food. I'm going to use an analogy to help understand the idea of simplicity. And what better thing to use than pie? That's an apple pie. Yeah? It's good for you. It has apples in it. Okay? How many pies do we have? One. That's one pie. There's not two pies. There's not three pies. There's just one. One whole pie. That pie has parts. It has a crust. It has a top layer. It has apples. It has the the gooey, creamy stuff that goes with the apples. Uh, Cinnamon sugar, there you go. The gooey stuff, yes. That's the technical term for it. That's one pie. Now, we can share this pie. If we actually had this pie here and it was big enough, we can take this pie and cut it up into slices. And if you really want to get my heart, what you do is you warm the pie and then you put some bluebell vanilla ice cream on top of it. (laughs) Right? But you can serve this up in slices. Now, if we serve this pie, let's just assume the pie is big enough for everybody in the room, and everybody got a slice of apple pie. Everyone gets a slice. Debbie, is your slice of pie going to be exactly the same as four slices of pie? Is four slices of pie going to be the same as everybody else's slice of pie? Every slice is going to be different. Every slice is going to be unique. And you can talk about the size of the slice. Depending on who's cutting it, the slices will vary in size. Every person will have a different quantity of each of the substances in the pie. Some of you are going to get more apple. Some of you are going to get less apple. Some of you are going to get more of the gooey stuff. Some of you are going to get less. Some of you are going to get more crust. Some of you are going to get less. And even when you talk about the crust... The ingredients in that crust are not perfectly and evenly distributed. So if you're talking about flour or water or milk or eggs or whatever is used to make the crust, you are not going to get the exact same quantity of those ingredients because they are not perfectly distributed throughout the crust. Every slice of pie is going to be just a little bit different. And you are only going to receive a finite quality of pie. We only have how many pieces, how many pies? We have one pie. And you can only get a finite portion of that pie. In one sense, this pie is simple. It's simple because it's numerical oneness. There's only one. But this pie is not like God. And if you think of the attributes as a slice of pie, if you think of God as a pie and you slice him up into his attributes... Holiness over here, righteousness over here, love and mercy, and all of these are slices of God. You end up with a very different God than the one that scriptures speak about. If God was like pie, then his attributes would be individual pieces of God. Each piece, you would get certain amounts of the attribute. And just like when you eat pie, your slice is going to have a different amount of each of his attributes. 
you're not going to get all of the attribute. You're only going to get certain attributes. You might get a slice of God that has a whole bunch of justice and not a lot of mercy. You might get the slice of God that has a whole lot of love, but no holiness. And whatever attributes you do get, you're only going to get a finite amount. Because you can't receive all of it in a slice. If you divide God up and you make him into a piece, you make him into a pie, and you think that he is divided by his attributes, it has some serious implications for your Christian walk. Because now you have to question when I go to God, which attributes am I going to get in my little slice? And how much of each of those attributes will I get? God is not like pie. And it's easier to slice God up than you think. One of the ways people slice God up as pie is by exalting one attribute over his others. They take one attribute and say, this is the most important attribute that I need to focus on. Now, there are many answers to this question, but the right one today is just going to be the one I have on the slide. So some of you are going to get the right answer, but it's just not the one I have on the slide. What are some attributes that people like to exalt? You guys are good. Yeah, love. And they usually exalt this attribute when they're trying to defend their sin and protect their favorite little sin. Well, God is loving. And of course, we agree. First John says God is love. Of course, absolutely. But they take this attribute and they exalt it to a level that what they end up doing is they end up diminishing his other attributes. The result of saying that God is loving and exalting this attribute is that his other attributes now are no longer effective. He can no longer be just anymore because he's loving. And if God is loving, he would not send me to hell. He wouldn't punish me for my sin because God is love and for him to punish me is unloving, according to their definition of the idea of love. Force of saying it's making an idol. Yeah, you're, you're creating a new God. A God who is all love, but not just. This also creates a conflict within God. And it pits the attributes against one another. You and I have this problem. Especially after you became a believer. Someone does something or says something to you, and in your head you know exactly what you want to say back and you really want to say it, and there's a part of you that says, just let him have it. And then you have to stop for a minute and go, wait a minute. Uh, I can't do that. That's not right. But I really want to. You have a conflict, don't you? You have the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. You're conflicted. Your attributes are at war with one another. Because you only have a finite amount of each of them. God's attributes are not conflicted with one another. It's one of the first teachings of simplicity. Michael Horton said simplicity reminds us that God is never self-conflicted. 
His attributes are not little parts of him that can be at war with one another. So when we say that God is simple, what are we actually saying? He's not like pie. He's not cut up into pieces. So what do we mean by God is simple? Well, let's go over to John 4, 24. John said God is a spirit. Now, just because God is a spirit doesn't mean he's simple. Angels are spirits. Demons are spirits. You have a spirit. And your spirit, in one sense, is simple. In the sense that your spirit does not have parts. It doesn't have... Well, your spirit has a body with it right now. But an angel doesn't have a body. They don't have arms, legs, eyes, nose, all that, all parts. So in that sense, a spirit is simple. They are one simple whole with no parts. But they are not simple as God is simple. They have that oneness, quantitative oneness, but they are not simple in the same way God is simple. God has no parts. How is your spirit not simple? Your spirit is a combination of attributes. And you have all sorts of different attributes. Here's a few of them. You might be faithful at times. At times I am faithful. But there are also times when I'm not. There are times when I am not joyful. I think if we think back to this last week, could you say this past week when your water and your power were out, you were joyful? There are times where we are not holy. These are parts of who we are. It's a part of how I live. But it doesn't describe all of me. You cannot describe me as being faithful. That's just one of my attributes. Our attributes are not simple because they are accidental. Accidental means that you can lose the attribute and still be what you are. You are by nature a human being, and your attributes, even if you lose them, some of them, it doesn't change what you are. If you lost physical attributes, um, I remember a picture of a young Marine we went to Afghanistan. It was either Afghanistan or Iraq. And he ended up getting burns over 90% of his body. And if you were to look at him now, you would not recognize him from what he was before he left. His physical attributes have all changed dramatically. Is he still a human? Yeah, you change the physical attributes, he's still human. If you alter and remove arms or legs, he's still human. You can change your hair color. You can change all sorts of physical attributes. These are accidental. They are not required for you to actually be human. Moral attributes, same thing. Here's a thought. Adolf Hitler was just as much human as everybody in this room. Regardless of where you end up on the moral scale, you're still human. These are accidental qualities. These are accidental attributes. They are not necessary to make you a human being. And your attributes are always changing. Who remember, remembers back to immutability? Why do people change? Bound by time, that is true. 
why do you need to learn and grow? Well, we have potential. Yes. Yes. We're created beings. We all have a deficiency. We all have a lot of deficiencies. We change because we have to compensate for our deficiencies. God never changes because he has no deficiencies. And it's a reality of creation, those who are bound in time, that as time progresses, you change. And you change because as creation, you have inherent deficiencies. All of your attributes are constantly changing. Every day they're changing. They're never the same. God's attributes are not like yours. God's attributes are immutable. They are essential. By essential, we mean they are necessary to his nature. If you remove one of the attributes of God, if you take one of the attributes we're going to discuss in this class and you remove it or diminish it, he is no longer God. If you take away infinity, whether that's infinity of time or infinity of space, if you take away infinity, you no longer have the God of Scripture. He is no longer God. If you take away or diminish any of his attributes, you change his essential nature and you lose his divine nature. Does that make sense? They're required. They have to be there or he is not God. And they are immutable, unchanging, because none of them have a deficiency. They don't describe a part of God. They're not finite. All of his attributes are just like him. He is infinite, and every single one of his attributes is also infinite. Thomas Aquinas from the 1100s said, God is not composed of extended parts. When we talk about the attribute of holiness, we're talking about all of God, not a piece of him. Irenaeus from the 2nd century He is simple, uncompounded being, without diverse members and altogether like and equal to himself. All the attributes are one in God. They all describe God's essence. Irenaeus went on, he said, Since he is holy understanding and holy spirit and holy thought and holy intelligence and holy reason, holy light and the whole source of all that is good. When we talk about each one of the attributes, those attributes are not describing a piece of God or a part of him. Each attribute describes his entire essence. My attributes only describe a part of me. If you're talking about my moral attributes, they describe a part of my life. But they do not describe me in my nature. God's nature is equal to his attributes. Joel Beakey said God's simplicity means that he has no parts and his attributes and essence are all one in him. Um, Wayne Grudem provides some good graphic illustrations of this. Pictures. God's attributes are not a collection where they just kind of like lump them all together. There's a whole bunch of problems with this. First, none of those are infinite because they're all little bubbles. And secondly, this makes God very disjointed. And you being a finite person, if you end up you know, down in this little corner, 
you only get a couple of those attributes, don't you? It just depends on where you end up on the chart, doesn't it? And that'll determine what attributes you get. But if all these attributes are just little parts, they're all moving, they're all changing, they're never the same. He's not a collection of attributes. His attributes are also not an addition. The big circle there would be God's being, his nature, his essence. And his attributes are just simply added on or attached. Which means his attributes modify his nature, but they don't actually come from his nature. They're not a part of his nature. They're just modifications to it. And once again, just depends on what part of God you happen to get to will determine which attribute you get to experience. God's attributes do not describe a part of him or a slice of him. They describe an aspect of God's character. He is a simple unity who is all of his attributes infinitely. He is all of them simultaneously at every moment, infinitely and perfectly. Uh, Wayne Grudem again provides some graphics, and these graphics are not perfect illustrations, and if you think long and hard enough, you will find problems with these graphics, so these are just to try to help. Again, the circle being God's being, the lines, the horizontal and vertical lines represent the attributes of love and justice. All of his being has love and justice. Now, this is not a perfect illustration. Since each of those are infinite, you would have an infinite number of vertical lines and an infinite number of horizontal lines. But if we were to do that in this picture, you wouldn't be able to distinguish between them. So you can add some more lines. Holiness and wisdom are the diagonal lines. Going down and right and down and left. And again, you would do this infinitely. All of his nature, all of his essence is characterized by each of his attributes. They are all one. They are all part of his, not part, there I go. They are all describing his nature. Now when we say that God has attributes, we're actually saying something we don't intend to say. When I say I have a certain attribute, what I'm saying is I possess the attribute. God does not possess his attributes. He doesn't possess them like I possess a computer. Or I possess, think of a moral attribute, joy, right? That's an addition to me. God does not possess his attributes. God is his attributes. His attributes describe what he is. He is all of them, and he is all of them infinitely. His attributes are identical to his essence. His essence describes his nature. His attributes, as we've said, are not parts of his nature. His attributes are his nature. Remember in the very first class, we talked about who versus what? We asked who is God, and we said that describes what he, what he does. And then when we asked the question of what what got to his nature and we didn't have an answer? If I asked, what is Michael? 
They'll tell me he's a human being, but you ask what is God, and the best we can get is he's God. The attributes is how we understand God's nature. Because outside of his attributes, we have no way to understand a spiritual, non-comporal, infinite being. There's just no way we're going to understand that. And so God has given us aspects of his nature so that we can understand who and what he is. And those are his attributes. And they all describe his entire nature. Infinitely. Let's look at some scriptural evidence. We're going to go back to John 4, 24. It says God is spirit. 1 John 1, 5, God is light. 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. Now, you would never use this kind of language for a person. You would never say, Frank is love. Carl is love. Why would you not say that? What's wrong with saying that about, about a person? Yeah, you don't have it all the time. You change. You might at times be loving, but you are not the standard of what love is. And when John says God is love, he's saying that God is the standard of what it means to be loving. Love is not something just that God does. It's not something that he has. It is what he is. God is love. He is the standard of love. Light is not something God has. Merely what he has. It is what he is. It describes his nature. Scriptures equates God with his attributes. God is holiness. God is righteousness. God is wisdom. Everybody following me? Anyone lost? Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. And you say, wait a minute, I don't know if true is an adjective here or how it's working. Okay, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not saying I just possess the truth. He's not saying I know the truth. He's saying I am the standard of what is true. I am the truth. Jeremiah again, and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. His name is righteousness. He is the standard of what it means to be righteous. If you want to know if you're righteous, just compare yourself to God and you've got the answer. 1 Corinthians 1.30 but by, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification. He's the standard of what it means to be wise. Reminds me of Job 38. God questioning Job and shows Job just how unwise he truly is. God is described by his attributes. All of his attributes discuss what his nature is. They're not just parts of him. Herman Bavinck, every attribute is identical with God's being by reason of, of the fact that every one of his virtues is absolutely perfect. 
you could say all of his attributes are infinite. All of his attributes exceed all limitations. They have no parts, and they are absolutely perfectly present. Each and every one. Okay, well, not everybody agrees with this doctrine of simplicity. There are some who say this doesn't exist. This is a made-up attribute. There's, there's no reason for us to teach this. And I want to give you some of their objections. First objection. Simplicity is a metaphysical abstraction rather than a biblical teaching. Okay, first of all, what is a metaphysical abstraction? Metaphysical just refers to everything that is beyond the physical. An abstraction would be something that some guy just thought up. So you could say a metaphysical abstraction would be questioning how many angels can dance on the tip of a pin. That's a metaphysical abstraction. There's no answer to it. Because it's not physical, we can't prove it one way or the other, and there's no way to know which, which one got the right answer. It's a metaphysical abstraction. And what they're saying is, look, simplicity is just something some guy thought up that makes some logical sense metaphysically, but we really can't prove it because it's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't mention simplicity. The term simplicity is not found in the Bible. And the Bible never says God is his attributes and that his attributes are his essence. It never says that. Therefore, simplicity is not a biblical teaching. Okay, I want to start with the first one of these. The Bible does not mention simplicity. Why is that not a good argument? Yeah. Yeah. So the simplicity is not found the term is not found in the Bible. But neither is Trinity. Trin, the term Trinity was developed by a guy named Tertullian in what 300 um, hypostatic union. It's not in the Bible, but we all believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Hypostatic union is just the term we've applied to explain what the Bible teaches. So saying, well, simplicity is not found in the Bible doesn't really help. And as Caleb said, it's an argument from silence. I'm sorry? In a way, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm the self-existing one. Let's do a response to this. Simplicity is based on sound exegesis of the text of Scripture. It's not based on a superficial reading that just looks for one word. Because if you did that and said, well, we have to find that particular word in there, then you have to abandon the Trinity. 1 John describes God in a couple ways. God is light. God is love. If you don't understand this as a description of God's nature, the book of 1 John doesn't make sense. 
if this is only describing what God does, how do you make sense of the book of 1 John? Because John's argument is dependent upon this describing his very nature. Consider 1 John 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Those who have fellowship with God cannot walk in darkness. Why not? They don't work together. Yeah. If you guys see those big spotlights they have at car sales now, they used to use them to find planes in the sky. If we had like four or five of those, and they were all shining on you from different angles, how many shadows would you see around you? None. The light would overpower all that darkness, and there would be no darkness. John's argument here is that God is light. Not just that he has some, he is light. And if you abide in God, if you have fellowship with God, if you're standing in the light, you can't be in darkness. Because he is infinitely light. Now, light here isn't referring to physical light. That's just the illustration. God's putting it so we can understand it. Light here is truth and holiness. But if this is not describing his essence, the argument doesn't make sense. He does the same thing with love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you know God, if you've been born of God, you will have some of his attributes. And God is love. If it was just a part of him, you could be born of him and you may not receive it. My parents have attributes that I don't. But if this describes his very nature, those who are born of God must have love. Because you have a part of his nature. 1 John 4.18 We have come to know and believed that the love which God has for us, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. If God, who is the standard of love, abides in you, the result is you must be loving. Joel Beakey looked at this verse. Here's what he said. He said, It is not a forced reading of the text to understand John as saying, Those who have been born of God and know God will certainly love one another, for God's very being is love. James Montgomery Boyce, same thing. John regards love not merely as a gift or an attribute of God, but in the deepest sense as God's own nature. If this is not describing his very essence, the book doesn't make sense. His argument doesn't work. So simplicity is based on exegesis of the text of Scripture. Second objection. Simplicity removes any distinction and makes all his attributes identical. And here's how this argument goes. Well, his attributes are not parts. And if his attributes are not parts, then you can't distinguish between them. Because the only way you can make a distinction is if there are different parts, if there's a division. Therefore, 
the attributes are nothing more than arbitrary distinctions that theologians have made up. Okay, so the first problem here. This is arguing in the wrong direction. What they've done is they've said, I have parts. Therefore, I can distinguish and make, distinguish, make distinctions about me. I have arms, I have legs, I have fingers, I have toes. Those are distinctions, and those distinctions come from my parts. And then they reason from there and say, well, God must be like me, and so if I'm going to make a distinction, that must mean he has parts just like me. What's wrong with that? You've just made God just like you. You have to reason the other way. You start with God and work your way down. Simplicity denies any division between the attributes, but it does not dissolve distinctions between them. We recognize that there are no divisions between the attributes of God. God is not divided. He's an undivided essence. But we do recognize that we can make distinctions about those attributes. Augustine called this a simple multiplicity. Each attribute is identical to the essence of God, but each attribute is distinct in the sense that we can identify it. Because each attribute expresses something special about who God is and what God is. Uh, Francis Turretin called, called them distinct intellectual concepts by which God reveals himself to man on a human level. Remember we were talking about God being incomprehensible beyond our ability to understand? The attributes are God's way of coming down to our level and making himself haveable making it to where we can know him. And he does that by revealing individual distinct attributes. So how can we make a distinction in a simple being who has no parts? How do we make distinctions on these attributes? Okay, let's do a little thought journey here. Imagine you were in a room. This room had no lights. And all the walls, the floor, and the ceiling were perfect pitch black. What would you see? It's an easy answer. Nothing. You would see nothing. Everything in the room is pitch black. It's all the color of that item is pitch black. And there is absolutely no light. You would see nothing. Now imagine I had a flashlight in that room, or you had the flashlight. And the flashlight turned on, you turned it on, and a white beam of light came out of that light. What would you see? You would see the white light. And if you shined it into something that's truly pitch black, it would seem to just vanish into the blackness. Okay? Now let's imagine you only see a white beam of light, but I reach in my pocket and I pull out a prism. And you shine that light through the prism. Now what do you see? Color. Lots of color. Do you now have multiple beams of light? No, you still just have one beam of light. It's refracted. The prism just makes it possible for you to make the distinction of what was already there. It's still just one beam of light. 
Let me put it another way. You have a prism. It's called Scripture. And by looking through the prism of Scripture, you can see the individual characteristics or individual attributes of God who is light. And so you can see him in all of his glory in a way that your mind can understand. You don't have multiple beams of light here. You have one beam of light. But you can still make those distinctions through a prism. Scripture makes a distinction. Scripture talks about the various attributes of God. These are not things that we are superimposing onto him. These are things that he describes himself with. And therefore, we can make that distinction because he's made that distinction. Okay, objection three. Simplicity is contrary to the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, we're not going to be on this very long. We're going to have a class on the Trinity. But here's the argument. If God is one simple essence, he cannot be three persons. You can't say he's one and then say he's three. Well, actually... Simplicity supports the doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't, re- it doesn't refute it. It's because of simplicity, it's because we say that God is one and he's undivided, that we say that we are not tritheist. The Father, Son, and Spirit are not three separate gods. That's simplicity. He's one undivided essence. It also prevents us from dividing, the God, dividing God into three parts, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not three parts of God. God is one eternal, undivided essence subsisting in three persons. It's persons, not parts. All right. Let's apply this. Why does this matter to you? Why does it matter that God is simple? God is simple, and because God is simple, when God is present, he is fully present. He's not parts. He's not pieces. Just like those graphics we looked at earlier. Therefore, you're never going to receive just a part of his attributes. Every attribute is always fully and infinitely present and available. You look back on this last week, And you might see some sin, whether internal or external. And you might need mercy. Good thing God doesn't have parts. Because God is present. All of his attributes are infinitely present. And perfectly present. And you can go to him and receive infinite mercy. Or maybe you need love. The New Testament describes God as Abba, Father. It's a term of affection, of endearment. And God is always present and his love is always infinitely available. Or maybe you need power. Not power in the sense of controlling things. But maybe you need power in sanctification. Power to fight sin. You're not going to get just a little piece of God. And he's not going to tell you, well, you're only going to get so much because I'm like, I'm like pie. And that's just the piece you're going to get. All of his attributes are always available to you. And they're available to you in their fullness. Infinitely. Whenever you need them. 
Make sense? Questions, comments, concerns? Should be. Said it's very comforting. Caleb? Good question. Yeah, uh, answer, no, they're not always manifested in the same way. Just like when we talked about omnipresence, God is always present. God is present in every place fully and completely. Uh, but that doesn't mean he, he manifests that presence everywhere. Um, so we would not say that God manifests his mercy um, in hell. He's still merciful, but that that attribute is not manifested there. It's not displayed there. Hell is not a place where God is absent. Hell is a place where mercy is not available, where Christ is not available. So, great question. Yeah. Any other questions? Comments? Yes, ma'am. She was saying that the more we grow in sanctification, the more we should desire to display his attributes. And as we move forward in this class, we're going to be talking about some of those communicable attributes like holiness, love, and those are the ones we're really going to want to be manifesting. Good. Anything else? So, yeah, we're, we're not going to manifest his attributes perfectly or infinitely like he does. That's not possible. And not all of his attributes we will manifest. So you're never going to be omnipresent. But there are communicable attributes that you can manifest and that you should be growing in. And some of those are in Galatians 5 as the fruit of the Spirit. So, all right, it's 10 o'clock. Let's close in prayer. And if you have any other questions, see me afterwards. Father, we thank you so much. Um, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that uh, without your word, you would be incomprehensible, that we would have no way to know you, to love you. Uh, we would have no way to even to begin to comprehend who and what you are. But you are merciful, and you are kind and loving, and you have revealed yourself to us. You've made yourself available to us. You have reconciled us to yourself through Christ. And Father, we, we do want to manifest the attributes of God in a way that is pleasing to you and the ones that we are able to manifest. We do want to grow in our love for you and grow in our fear of you. And so we just ask that you would help us uh, think on these things, meditate on these things, consider your attributes, and that in doing so that we would grow in our love and our fear of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.